Good morning again. Try not. I did. Getting feedback still. All right. Turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter five. John chapter five. The wireless back here. The cordless is off. Yeah. It's all right. We'll, we'll work with it. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, says this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, So also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who, uh, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has gained, uh, granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. We have to stand before your word once again in awe, Uh, to stand before your word once again with the call to worship you. God, I pray as we study through this passage that we will be attentive, that we will uh, hear your words, that we will learn much from your scriptures today. In your name, amen. Amen. So uh, I actually got the opportunity to take a little bit of a vacation during this week. Uh, Since the offices were closed, we snuck out of here and went to Galveston. So I'm nice and refreshed. So you get a nice, exciting message today. Just, just know this, when pastor comes back for vacation, he's ready to preach. So, so I'm ready, I'm excited. Um, this passage here, it, it's, it, it's, I'm excited about this because this starts us as, as John will do later in the gospel more. Um, we, we've already seen that all of the gospel of John and no, more all of scripture is about the Trinity is about God and God's revelation of himself as Trinity. However, in this particular passage, we see that really clearly. That makes, us, uh, makes it uh, slightly more difficult because it is dealing with who God is. And um, we need to be very careful when we explain that because it's very easy to fall into traps of false doctrine. Uh, when you're when we're talking about the Trinity, so by God's grace, um, and uh, and with His help, with His help, uh, we will try to make it through this passage without leaving you all, you guys all, as heretics. So um, we're going to do our best to do that. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is something I have spent a great deal of time studying. I've been studying uh, the doctrine of the Trinity for 
six or seven years now at some level. Uh, so uh, I'm very, very passionate about this subject and I'm really excited to be able to teach on this. So um, let's get started here. What, 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 just in thinking about this, what could be more glorious than to learn more about our God? What could possibly be more glorious? I can't think of anything sweeter than knowing God more deeply. We can listen to sermons about 10 steps to a healthier marriage or a sermon about five steps to have, uh, have better, have been more effective at work. But those sermons ultimately would find us at the center of his word. I already know enough about me to know that I don't deserve to be found at the center of scripture. I don't deserve that. Thankfully, scripture is not about us, but rather it's a book about him. Scripture is honest about us, revealing our sin and weakness to us, which drives us to have a greater reliance upon him. Scripture shows us that anything good about us is only found in the goodness of our Savior. Any good, goodness we have is not our own, but it belongs to God. So Jesus teaches us the importance then of having a firm foundation on which to build our faith. Right in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Jesus tells this, this story here. He says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, uh, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So it's so important for us to understand to have a firm foundation on which we place our faith. So it becomes very important to understand the foundation of our salvation. And as we'll see today, that foundation of our salvation, is we'll see that, that in this passage today. Uh, Jesus, uh, with, without a firm foundation, our faith cannot stand. So what is that foundation of our faith? What does scripture teach us is the foundation of our salvation? The simple answer is not a what, but a who. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. In other words, he's the most important piece of the foundation, which assures the, the rest of the foundation will be laid correctly. Likewise, the entire foundation of our salvation is grounded in the relationship between the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Often we make the mistake of believing that salvation is grounded in God's love for us. And that is at its most basic level, it's God's love for us that is the foundation of, of our salvation. But that makes us the center. That makes us being the very centerpiece of God's love, of, of God's salvation for us. While certainly God does love us, that love is only secondary. That love is there. He absolutely does love us, but that is not the primary love that God has, which, found, which founds our salvation. As we'll see today, it's based in another relationship. The real foundation of our salvation is not God's love for us, but rather in the Father's love for the Son. I say that again, God's, the foundation of our salvation is not based on God's love for us, but rather foundationally it's based on God the Father's love for God the Son. As we look at this passage, we're going to see several glimpses that the Gospel of John gives into the relationship between the Father and Son. And looking into this relationship, we'll see the beautiful foundation of our salvation and see the beautiful love 
shared between the members of the triune Godhead. My prayer for us this morning is this, is that we will see and revel in the beauty of the inter-Trinitarian inter relationship of God. That's what we want to do today. So this may not be, you may think, oh, this is already going to be boring. It's going to be theology. Absolutely not. This, the goal of this message is for us to revel in who God is, to see his beauty and glory in who he is. First of all, we'll see in this passage uh, that the Son is dependent on the Father for his actions and for his authority. So in these first verses here, um, the Son is absolutely dependent on the Father for his actions and for his authority. Verse 19 starts out, it says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. The Son can do nothing of his own accord. This verse then, this idea that the Son does nothing of his own accord or on his own, on his own will, the, the Father, that the Son does nothing, is, is dependent then on someone else. This is explained by four fours, if you will. The word four, F-O-R. There's four of them, F-O-U-R. Right? There's four fours which explain this, this whole thing. This word four is the word for or because. So these next four phrases are going to these clauses, these four clauses, if you will, they're going to explain what that means for the father, for the son to not do anything of his own accord. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we understand that? How do we understand this relationship between the father and son in the Trinity? If we get that wrong, we can understand Jesus completely incorrectly and be lost in our sin. So it's very important to understand these things at some level. Um, the, verse 19 is explained by these four four clauses. You'll find the first one in the second half of the verse. You'll find the second, the second one in verse 20, the third one in verse 21, and the th fourth one will be found in verse 22. These clauses are meant to unpack the relationship between the Father and the Son, revealing the source of the Son's authority. So first of all, we're, basically this is going to jump into the topic of the Trinity. We believe that God is one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's only one God, and there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what that means, we're going to unpack some of that today. John, John will actually do a lot more explaining in chapters 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus will explain a lot more of the inter-Trinitarian relationship. And when we get there, we'll deal with it there too. So uh, for today, we're going to kind of try to stay somewhat focused on what this passage deals with, though there will be some sidetracks that will be important to understand. What makes the Trinity one is that they each share in the divine essence. Whatever that essence is, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share that one divine essence. That's what unifies the Trinity. What makes them distinct is that each person of the Trinity has different roles that they perform. They, they have these distinct roles. For example, as D.A. Carson explains, quote, the Father initiates, sends, commands, commissions, and grants, and the Son responds, obeys, performs his Father's will, receives authority. In this sense, the Son is the Father's agent, though as John will go on to insist, he's much more than an agent. In John 1.3, we saw how we saw that all things were made through him, the word, the logos, the, the, the divine word of God, who is the son of God, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, that God created, the father created all things through 
Him through the Son. So there's through, that word through is an agency word. The Father creates by means of the Son. So there's an idea here where the Son acts as an agent of the Father. The Father acts through the Son. So we'll, and, and, and that's part of what this Trinitarian relationship means. So the first reason for this, so we see, we're already seeing that the Son doesn't do anything of his own accord. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Let's start unpacking this. The first four, if you will, in the second half of the verse here, it says, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. It is impossible for the Son to take independent, self-determined action that would set him over against the Father as another God. Perfect sonship involves perfect identity of will and action with the Father. So what makes the Son not in contrast to the Father? What makes them one, what makes them united, is the fact they share a will. They share their will with one another. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. If the Son did something other than what the Father does, then the Son would not be God, right? They couldn't be because they would be acting in in competition with one another. So the Son finds his authority. He, He derives his authority. He acts in the way that the Father would act. So when we see Jesus do something, when we see the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, do something, it is because the Father has willed it. It is the exact same thing that the Father would do. Because the Son does not act apart from the Father. Later, Jesus' disciples would ask Jesus to show them the Father. Jesus' response is that if they have seen him, they have seen the Father. This is not to say that the Father and Son are exactly the same person as if there's no distinction. That would be a heresy called Sabellianism. We don't believe that. We don't believe that, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just different names for the same God. It's not what we believe. We believe that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons in the Trinity. Rather, what Jesus is explaining is that he, Jesus, the Son of God, reveals the Father to us because he is in perfect sync with the actions and the will of the Father. So when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen what I've done, you've seen the exact same things that the Father would do. So why do you ask, can can we see the Father? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because his actions are, are so in sync with the will of God. Verse 20 here then. How can the son be in perfect sync with the father? Right, That might be a question we would ask. If they're separate persons, how can they be completely in sync with one another? How does that make sense? Well, we have the second four is right here in verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. How can the son do everything that the father would do? How can his actions be completely in sync with the father? Because the father reveals it to him. All right? So uh, this is our four number two. Then the love of the father for the son is displayed in the continuous disclosure of all that he does to the son. Think about that. This is constant and continuous. The Father constantly and continuously is revealing to the Son all that He would do. Right? In, in perfect unity, there's this constant, constant uh, revealing that the, that the Father gives to the Son. 
is this constant, uh, continuous disclosure of all that he of all uh, that he does to the son. The love of the fa- of the son for the father. Then, so the father loves the son by continuously revealing himself or continuously disclosing all that he does to the son, and the son then responds in love to the father by his perfect obedience that issues at the cross. Right. So there's this reciprocation of that love as well. The son in obedience goes to the cross. D.A. Carson again explains that there are two truths that follow from this, which causes us to marvel. Look at that, at the end of verse 20 there. It says, uh, it says that you see, uh, for the father loves the son and shows him all he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. So uh, how does this cause us to marvel? One, we see, uh, according to D.A. Carson, uh, quote, uh, first, the son, by his obedience to his father, is acting in such a way that he is revealing the father, doing the father's deeds, performing the father's will. The son is exegeting or narrating the father. That comes from chapter 1, verse 18, where it says that he has revealed the father. He's shown us the father. The one who is from the father has shown us the father. In in chapter 1, verse 18. Secondly, this marvelous disclosure of the nature and character of God utterly depends in the first instance, not on God's love for us, but on the love of the Father for the Son and on the love of the Son for the Father. The very obedience and dependence that characterize Jesus' utter subordination to the Father are themselves so perfect that all Jesus does is what the Father wills and does. So it is nothing less than the revelation of God, unquote. Everything we see Jesus do in this gospel is direct revelation of who God is because he is revealing the Father. That's heavy. That's complex. But it's so beautiful to, to see how God reveals himself in Scripture, how God reveals himself in the Son of God. Such a wonderful, wonderful picture. No wonder the text claims that we will marvel at the greater works of Jesus. We'll be amazed at the greater things that Jesus will do. He will raise people from the dead. Amen. When he calls Lazarus forth, Lazarus forth later on in the gospel, later we'll see Jesus raise himself from the dead. Conquering sin and Satan and death. What else? How does that not blow your mind? Right? That God reveals the love of the Father for himself by saving us. What? It's so amazing. This is so, we, we should stand amazed. We should stand before this and as we talk about who God is, we should stand and go, I can't believe that. That is amazing, because it is amazing. It should boggle our minds. If you don't find yourself wondering how in the world you can wrap your mind around this, you haven't been in the presence of God. This is, it's, it's such a wonderful thing here. Um, it says that we can marvel at the greater works of Jesus. The greater works uh, especially are, are highlighted in verses 21 and 22. That he will give life to the dead and he will pronounce final judgment. Right? We see that it's come, that comes out of this passage. We'll get there as we, as we move through. Now we come to the next four, the third four in this passage. 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The perfect unity of will between the Father and Son is shown in the perfect unity of action in giving life. We have seen God raise the dead in the Old Testament in the same way God the Son will not only physically raise the dead, but he will also spiritually give life through salvation. The salvation that Jesus gives is according to his will, which is in sync with the will of the Father. There's this, uh, there's this back and forth that's totally together. God does not save anyone apart from his will. God is not under any obligation to save anyone. Anyone that receives salvation only receives it by the will of God. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you can rest assured that your salvation is found in the will of God. What an amazing thought. If you're a Christian today, if you've given your life to Christ, that was the will of God for you to be saved. It was not your will. It was not something that you caused to happen. It was straight from the will of God for you. How amazing is that? What a glorious truth to revel in right there. If you're not a Christian, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Even now, the Holy Spirit may be drawing you to salvation, and this salvation is offered freely. Will you trust Christ as your Savior? It's His will for you to do so. Will you accept Him? Will you believe in Him? Will you trust Him? And we see the next one, verse, the, the next four, our fourth four, is in verse 22. Now this is, uh, it may not be obvious in your translation. My translation, in fact, doesn't translate this particular word. In the original language, the word four is also in verse 22 here. So it should literally say, it would literally say, for the Father judges no one. Now if your translation is like mine, you might not have that word in there, but it is in there. It's, it's, so it's, this is our fourth Four, our fourth four is, is this one right here. Um, that this is so, um, it says, For the Father judges no one, but it is given all judgment to the Son. <clears throat> so here we see uh, even more clearly one of the wonderful truths of the Trinity. This is such a, some of the, one of the, again, these, these mind boggling, wonderful truths of the Trinity here. We've already described how each member of the Trinity has distinct roles. Part of the beauty of the Trinity is found right here. The Son and the Holy Spirit receive their existence eternally from the Father. That's the distinction here. We receive our existence in time, right? We are given life. We are given our, our, our physical functions. That happens in time. There is a per certain point when you were conceived, when you were born, and there is a time right now that you are breathing, right? That's not so for the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's a distinction there. The, the Son and the Holy Spirit eternally receive their being from the Father. So the Father eternally shares himself with the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see the distinction there? This is why the Son and the Holy Spirit are also God. If they eternally share in the divine essence, then they are eternally God with the Father. Now, there's, a, there's a, an interesting aspect of this that we need to understand. This then gives us more of a three-dimensional, more of a, uh, a three-dimensional view of the Trinity. There is, there is structure within the Trinity. The Father is the fountainhead of the Trinity from which the triune God flows. The Father then is the one from whom the Son and Holy Spirit find their being. 
right? This, the, the theologically, we use the term, we use this term uh, that, the, that, the, that the son is begotten from the father, whatever that means, right? It's, we're not exactly sure what, what that means in a triune, in, inter, in an eternal relationship, but the son is begotten from the father, and the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in, in later in John, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Right? These are relationship terms. Begotten and proceed are relationship terms. They're very complicated, and I'm not even sure at this point that I could explain it really well. So we're going to have to hold that off until we get to later on in John, and hopefully we can, we can have some better explanation there. But these two terms of, 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 of begottenness and procession, these are how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit relate to the Father. This is how they find their existence from the Father. Now we see in this passage then, we see, how, we see a glimpse of this, how, how the Son is receiving some of his authority from the Father. We also talked about how, how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have different roles within the Trinity. Where do you think they get those roles? If the Father is the fountainhead of the Trinity, who is the one giving those authority roles to the members of the Trinity? It's the Father. Look at this right here in verse 22. The Father judges no one but is given all judgment to the Son. So part of the Son, part of Him being Son, part of Him being begotten from the Father, in that eternal Trinitarian relationship, the Father has eternally given the Son the authority of judgment. Eternally so. So that is the role, one of the, one of the roles of the Son is to be the judge of all the earth. Because he's been given this role eternally from the Father. This is not authority given in time, as if there was a time when the Son did not have the authority as judge. The Father eternally gives that authority to the Son. So, just like creation derives from the Father and is created through the Son, the judgment of God flows from the Father through the Son. When we see God as a good judge, judging the world for its sin, we can be certain that that judgment comes through the Son, for the Father has given that role to the Son. All righty, right here, just in these first couple of verses, these four fours that we've looked at, right here, what beauty, what magnificent beauty we've seen in the complete unity and interdependence within the Trinity. Right, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit need each other. They are dependent on one another. Right? The Son depends on the Father for his own existence as the Son. And the Father would not be a father without the Son. Right? That would make no sense. I was not a father until Curtis was born. Right? So the Father is dependent on the Son for his role as Father. And the Holy Spirit uh, proceeds from the Father and calls people to salvation and all, that is, all, that, all the roles that he has as well. The Son is dependent on the Father for His authority. How much more must we be dependent on the triune God of the universe for every breath we take and every decision we make? We absolutely, if the Son is dependent on the Father, we as well should be dependent on the triune God of the universe. So we've seen first that the, fa that the Son 
that the son is dependent on the father for his actions and authority. Secondly, we see the father's purpose is to glorify the son. Look at verse 23. For as the father, uh, verse 23, sorry, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sends him. Why does the father reveal himself through the son in this way? Why does the father so freely express his love to the son? As we saw in verse 23, it's so that all may honor the Son, just as, or in the same way that, they honor the Father. It's because the Son loves, the Father loves the Son in the way that He does, because He wants to see the Son worshipped. He wants to see Him honored. That is love. Right? The Father equally deserves that worship. And he does receive that worship. But his love for the Son and for the Holy Spirit is so much and so intense that he desires to see them worshipped as well. He doesn't desire to see me worshipped. He loves me, but he doesn't desire to see me worshipped. I don't deserve that worship. He loves you, but he does not desire for you to be worshipped. He loves the Son, and his love for the Son is so that all may honor him just as they honor the Father. What an extremely intense love we see here. The Father expresses his love to the Son in this way. It's so that the Son will be worshipped. Jesus' words then turn to warning. To not honor the Son is to reject the Father. Look at verse 20, uh, look at ver- uh, the rest of verse 23 and through to verse 24. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you look at Jesus and you say, well, there's just a really nice guy, but yeah, nothing really more than that. Essentially, what Scripture has said here, you have said, I don't care about the Father. I don't worship the Father. Religions that would reject Jesus as Savior, that might think that they worship God, but reject Jesus. They have already rejected the Father. This is why Christianity is an exclusive religion. Not everyone is saved. Everyone does not, is not automatically in. Because to reject the Son is to reject the Father. You can't have one and not the other. Verse 24 then, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed away from death to life. What Jesus essentially says here is to worship me, is to worship the Father, is to be saved. To honor, honor the Son is to honor the Father, is to have life in Christ, is to be saved. There is no salvation any other way. There is no other person through which we can find salvation because they are not the Son of God. Muhammad is not the Son of God. Amen. Worshiping and following Muhammad is not going to do you anything because he is not the Son of God. Amen. Worshiping and following Justin will also not do you anything because I'm not the Son of God. More amen for that one needed. (laughs) The only way we will find salvation is by worshiping and honoring the Son of God because through worshiping and honoring the Son, we worship the Father. That is it. 
We cannot worship the Father apart from the Son, and we cannot worship the Son apart from the Father. And the Holy Spirit is right there too. Look back at verse 24. I want to point out one more thing in this verse before we move on. Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The word hear here, <laughs> the word hear with your ears in this place, <laughs> this has the impl- is, is implied in this word is, is the idea of also acting in obedience. So this is not just hearing the scriptures or hearing something be said. This is also acting in obedience. This would be very much like if you were to tell your children to, uh, to take out the trash and then five minutes later you come back and they didn't take out the trash. And you said, did you hear me? I told you to take out the trash. And they might say, well, I heard you. And you're thinking, that's not what I was meaning by that. I mean, you must not have heard me because the trash is still there. Right? They didn't act on what they heard. This is the same kind of idea that's here. It's, it's whoever hears and believes, not just listening with their ears, not just information coming into their ear canals, but also that, that you hear and obey. You hear and you act. You hear and you believe. <clears throat> he does not come, this person who believes uh, uh, has eternal life and is not coming to judgment, but is passed from death to life. Third thing we see here is that the Son brings salvation from the Father. This is in the rest of our passage today. The Son brings salvation from the Father. So we saw that the Son derives His authority and His actions from the Father. Second, we saw that the Father's purpose is to glorify the Son. And third, the Son brings salvation from the Father. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say unto you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear, again, the same kind of hear, it's hearing that implies action, those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. We have this beginning in verse 25. It says the time is, is coming and now is. This is implying that the salvation is already available. Soon, Jesus will be crucified and buried and raised again. But the time of salvation was already at hand. The, the actual acts that would enact salvation, the death and resurrection, which would bring salvation. That time, though, of accepting the, that salvation was already at hand. It could already be done. We've already seen people who have believed on the name of Jesus. And been saved. Right? We've already seen that in the Gospel of John. The time is coming and now is. In this particular passage, Jesus is saying that there is, there is there's these two aspects. There's a future aspect and a present aspect as well. It says then in verse, it says, uh, continuing on in verse 25, still there, it says, There's a time coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The dead here is talking about the spiritually dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are born dead. We are born spiritually dead dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not born into salvation. We're not born into Christianity. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. It is not until we are made alive in Christ through, our, through trusting in, the, in, in, in Jesus for our salvation. It's not until then that we're truly alive. Though we're not physically raised from the dead in our resurrection bodies, though secondly, this is the part where the is and now is, um, Though we are not physically raised from the dead in our resurrection bodies yet, we are currently resurrected to new life in Christ. If you are a Christian, the glorification that is to come is already certain, so that we are already raised to life. 
right? If you are a Christian, the glorification that's going to happen in eternity is so certain that we can say that we're even resurrected now. What another, again, another wonderful truth about our salvation that we learned from this passage, right? Our resurrection is so sure that we can even act in, 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 we can act in the light of it as well. We are called to live the life that is already ours. We don't have to wait for heaven to bring glory to God, to bring glory to Christ in our actions. We can do that now because we are already raised from the dead. Verse 26 then, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is another uh, affirmation of the deity of Christ. The Son is able to do this because the Father has given him that authority. We are derived creatures. We are created beings. Our lives are completely dependent on God's grace. Our very breath is dependent on God's grace. God is the living God. The Father freely and eternally shares this attribute with the Son. Only God has this attribute. So, for the Son to possess this attribute, He must also be God. He must be. Not He might be. Not He could be. He must be. For Him to have life in Himself, for Him to have this attribute that He receives from the Father, He must be the Son of God and then therefore must be worshipped. Verse 27 then, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. We've already seen how this works, that the father gives this authority to the son. The father gives these authority authorities to the son. The son receives then, the, the opposite is also true, the son receives his authority for judgment from the father. The son of man in this passage, it says he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. This is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which says this. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is having a vision and he he sees this. He says, I saw in the night visions, verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that is to the son of man, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's who Jesus is. That's what it means for him to be the son of man. So when Christ refers to himself as the son of man, it is not just necessarily just Him trying to avoid associating himself with God, like some scholars would say. Jesus never called himself the Son of God. That's nonsense. In calling himself the Son of Man, he's saying, I'm the guy that's being talked about in Daniel chapter 7, who has all the authority and all the dominion, and who has an everlasting throne and an everlasting kingdom. Jesus' remark is not one necessarily of, of, of humility, of trying to, oh, I'm not really that important. That's when he calls himself the son of man, that's not the case at all. He is declaring in no uncertain terms his absolute authority over us. Verse 28 then, moving on, uh, says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice. In this passage then, in this passage, remember in the previous one it says there is a time coming, there's an hour coming, and now is. In this one, it doesn't have that and now is. 
This is talking about something completely future. There is an hour coming. The hour is coming, uh, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. This hour is only future. In the last day, every single human being will be raised, resurrected to judgment. Every single person will be raised from the dead to meet their final judgment. And what is that judgment continuing on in verse 29 and 30? In, in verse 29, it says, And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The outcome is certain. Amen. Those who have done good will be raised to resurrection of life. And those who have done evil will be raised to a resurrection of judgment. This passage is not declaring works-based salvation. It's not saying that if you do enough good things, then you get to heaven. It's not what this is saying at all. As we've already seen in John, those who have done good are those who have come to the light so that it may be plainly seen what they have done through God. In verse thir- uh, that's in chapter 3, verse 21. By contrast, those who are evil, those who have done evil, they love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. That's in 319. We also saw in chapter 1, verse 12, that all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So this is not works-based salvation. But it's part of a biblical truth that only those who believe in and trust Jesus as their Savior can be considered good. There is no good. No, not one. The only goodness that we have it's that we are not considered good because of our own goodness, but it's because of the goodness of Christ in us if we are going to be called good. These people that he is saying here, those who, are, who do good to the resurrection of life, only, the only people that can qualify are those who find their goodness and their righteousness in Christ. That is it. <clears throat> if you are a Christian, you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. That is the only reason you are good. Our own goodness is not truly good, for it cannot bring life. Therefore, all those who are outside of Christ are considered evil and will be raised to a resurrection of eternal judgment. Because outside of Christ, we are still, as Ephesians 2 says again, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. We've not been made alive yet. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, this is who you are. If you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, if you've not given your life to Him, you are this person. You are the one who has done evil and your destiny is to a resurrection of judgment apart from Christ. Then the next verse here summarizes this entire passage. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's what Jesus does. This is his role as son of God. What a glorious opportunity we've had to peek this morning into the divine relationships. This relationship between the son and the father calls us to repentance and calls us to live in obedience to the commands of God. As we move to the invitation, a couple of uh, <clears throat> points to direct us towards. First of all, if you are a Christian, I hope today stirred your soul. 
I hope that this morning your soul was stirred to revel in the glory of God, to, to reflect on it in your minds and in your hearts. Worship the God who is. Not the God that you want there to be, but the worship the God who actually exists. The triune God of the universe. What a beautiful portrait we've been able to have. What a beautiful opportunity that John has given us to look into the divine relationship. And he'll give us even more opportunity. If you thought all the fun was over, it's not. John 14, 15, and 16 is basically Jesus talking about this stuff even more. It's going to be awesome. I hope this invigorated your soul. Christian, part of believing in Jesus, part of trusting and part of hearing his word is also obedience. It's also obedience to his commands. It is, it is pursuing a life of, 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 of walking in, in, in obedience to him. One of those obedience and the first and most important of those is this one is to be sharing your faith with others. It's called the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That is our first and greatest command. Are you being obedient to that command? I would, I would, I would suggest that if you're not being obedient to that command, it would be very near impossible to be obedient to any of the other commands. If you're not a believer today, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you, you're hearing about this, uh, about this salvation that's offered, the Holy Spirit may be drawing you to salvation right now. Don't leave today without, without making sure that you have a relationship with Jesus, or at least moving, taking a step in that direction. I'll be down here at the front, and I'd be glad to chat with you about that, or, or grab me after the service, and I'd love to talk with you more about how you can know for sure that you have a relationship with Jesus, that you are, are, are one of the ones who are the good that are resurrected to life and not one of the evil resurrected to judgment. I would love to share with you more about that. Um, and finally, if you're, if you're here and you, you're looking for a church home, we'd love for you to have this opportunity to come, come and I'd love to talk with you and we can uh, talk about how we can, how we can move towards, move, make a, move towards membership at our church. So we'd love to have you be a part of us and to be able to serve alongside us as we try to serve the community of Gordon. Uh, let me pray for us as we move into the, and we move into the invitation. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to look at your word. Lord, again, this wonderful challenge to look into the divine relationship. God, I pray that you would, during this time, that you would stir our hearts toward repentance, that you would stir our hearts towards, uh, towards loving you. Um, and Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, may they come to know you today. I pray this in your name. Amen.